0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we give thanks today for the hope that we have in Christ. A hope that gives us confidence beyond the grave. That places hope beyond what this world has to offer. That gives us hope in a Christ who has gone before us. And who has triumphed over the grave. That is now at your right hand ever living to intercede for us. And so Lord we give thanks today Father that we can come before you. And we can find true comfort and hope in Christ. Father, I pray that today, as we look to your word, that our hearts would be open and attentive to what you have for us. Father, take away the distractions and concerns of this upcoming week. Father, the concerns and cares and difficulties that we faced this last week. Father, by your spirit, focus our hearts upon your word, that we may be changed by it. Father, work in our midst as only you can. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. And my uh, goal is to try to get through verses 1 through 6. We'll see how we do. Um, I have a lot of notes and a lot of things to get through. So we'll, we'll see how things go this morning. But this morning we're going to be looking at the Pilgrim's family. Look with me in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. Edmund Clowney, who was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in the Philadelphia area, and then later on in California, a well-known Bible commentator, writes this concerning these words here in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, The Christian who follows Jesus does not grasp for privilege. He or she is already privileged beyond imagination. The Christian seeks, rather, opportunities to imitate Christ in willing subjection to service. The Christian is someone who seeks to serve their family. It is knowing what we have in Christ, it is knowing that we are infinitely blessed beyond all other things, that enables us, that frees us to live a life of submission to others. We actually saw this in First Peter chapter two, in chapter two here, where in verse sixteen he calls us to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as, and then this is key, servants of God. That freedom that we have does not tie us to the things of this world or the, the things that this world would push to us as being important. And so, having that freedom in Christ frees us to live a life of service. You know, it's interesting as we read the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, John makes a point to say that Jesus knew that everything had been handed over to him by the Father. Jesus recognized that he had all power and all authority. He realized he was in the place, truly, of preeminence. And then what did he do? He served. He washed his disciples' feet. It is this attitude of freedom that allows us to not only walk the pilgrim life, but specifically... To live free of the trappings and temptations and attitudes of the world in which we are walking. Now this will become important as we look at the Pilgrim's family. You see, from the world's constant call to liberation that only enslaves us, to the constant materialism that drives us to keep keep us up with the Joneses, valuing our relationship with Christ above these things, And allowing our freedom in him transforms us to be submissive servants rather than demanding our rights for the sake of serving others. Now this is a counter-cultural call. And particularly the call to be submissive rather than to to demand our rights. And the tension that that brings in our current day and age I think is nowhere more clearly perceived than in the opening lines of what Peter says in the third chapter. Wives, be subject to your husbands. The modern mind recoils at those words. The modern mind pushes back against that type of idea. They're viewed as sexist and part of a patriarchal religion that seems to elevate men above women and treat women almost like property. If there's any Statement of Scripture that is anathema to our modern sensibilities, it is, wives, submit to your husbands. So what are we to do? We could adjust the message of Scripture to fit better with our modern current sensibilities. We could just skip over this passage. I could have skipped over verses 1 through 7 and said, let's just move on. And think, I'll be honest, I'm like, well, maybe I don't have to preach on this, you know. But it's in the Word of God. We can't avoid it. And we have to understand that the Word of God is given to correct the issues in our lives where we let the world's thinking impede upon our own. In fact, the knee-jerk reaction that we tend to have to the opening words of chapter 3 is likely an indication that the world's thinking has already infiltrated our minds and our thinking. Possibly showing us, reproving us, correcting us, and instructing us in righteousness as we look at what Peter is calling us to do. Not just what Peter is calling us to do. These are not merely the opinions of men. This is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't Peter's opinion. Ultimately, it's whose opinion? God. And so what we're going to see as we work through this passage today and next week and maybe the week after that, depending on how things go, is that as a pilgrim, we must seek radical Christ-like service in our family. As a pilgrim, we must seek radical Christ-like service in our family. And so we're going to begin by first seeing that the pilgrim strives for Christ-likeness in the family. The pilgrim strives for Christ-likeness in the family. Now, Christ-likeness shows us that Christ is our example. And this is something we spent some time talking about when we talked about submission to ruling authority, submission to those who have authority over us. We see in chapter 2, verse 21, Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow Christ. In his steps. One of the reasons we looked at John 13 and particularly the the washing of Jesus' feet is it is an example for us in how we are to treat everyone in our relationships. But Peter, particularly in chapter 3, connects the thoughts of what he was saying in chapter 2 with what we see in chapter 3. And of course, we need to remember that the chapter and verse divisions, Peter didn't put those in there. Those were put on later by translators to help us find things in Scripture. So it would have actually made a lot more sense for him to just sort of walk into this this way because it would have flowed easily. There's no chapter break in what Peter had written. But he still does draw our attention to the connection with the previous passage by the first word in Chapter 3, verse 1, he uses the term likewise, or in the same way, or in the same manner. And in fact, he not only uses it here in chapter 3, but he also brings it up in chapter 7. likewise, husbands. This is used to link the two sections together. He makes a point that our Christian lives and our family lives are not somehow separate areas that we sort of live separately, that we don't let them impede upon each other. In fact, he's making the point that the pilgrim's life, every aspect of his life, is affected by his call to live a transformed life. You know, I think particularly if you talk to people my age, younger than me, and you were to ask them, particularly as they're leaving the church in droves, you were to ask them, well, why are you turning from Christianity? And I think in many cases, the answer would be, because my parents acted one way on Sunday, but then in their regular lives that I saw them every day, they acted completely differently. And so parents, that's a challenge to you, to live out your calling as a pilgrim, not just on Sundays, not just when the family goes to church, but at all times. Why would a child follow Christ if their parents deny him in the way they interact with each other or their family? So Peter connects the walk of pilgrims in their, to their walk in their families. Follow in his steps calls us to enact the principles of following Christ in our relationships in our family. And then specifically, he's going to point to the primary relationship seen in the family between husbands and wives. Now, we also have to recognize that if Christ is our example, then likeness to Christ is our goal. In fact, it is the great goal of Christianity. Sanctification is a big word that we say being made holy. Well, who is the Holy One? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And he walked upon this earth. We have four books of the New Testament that tell us how he lived, that show the sterling character that he has. And that is our goal. So we want to be like him in all things. Peter particularly points this out when what we looked at last week. In verse 24 of chapter 2, he tells us that Christ takes our sin in his body on the tree And then we connected that with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians as we receive his righteousness. So having that that legal declaration made, what effect does it have for us? We are to live to righteousness. And so where is that righteousness that we are called to live by exemplified? In Jesus. And so as we interact in our families, our interactions and our relationships... With each other, and must actively and carefully seek to reflect the kind of righteousness we have received. Remember, we talked about how Paul used that term, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus? That speaks to the operation of the mind, a careful consideration. You know, it can be very easy, particularly in husband and wife relationships, to just sort of coast. To just sort of go through your daily routine and to just stick with the routine without giving a careful thought to how you're to interact with each other. And so the the call to righteousness in the likeness of Christ calls us to think carefully about that in our relationships as husbands and wives. And then particularly among the family, it is designed for redemptive relationships. Relationships. Particularly in Ephesians chapter 5, we see Paul pointing out that really every relationship within the body of Christ is an opportunity to show the relationship of Christ with his church. We see in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we are to be imitators of who? God, as beloved children. And so he's talking about how we're to interact with each other. How has God treated you? With amazing grace. So how should you treat others? With amazing grace. With love, as Paul says. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, we are to love each other as God has loved us, and that means sacrifice, not just in the marriage family, but for each other. That the church is to be a people who are serving each other. That the church is to be a people who are not above tying a, a towel around our waist and cleaning each other's feet. If we are to be Christ-like. But particularly, there is a call To submission for wives and to sacrifice for husbands that Paul talks talks about. It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he begins by pointing to this submission that we're to have to everyone. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he applies that specifically to how that works out in the marriage relationship. Wives, and here we have those words that everyone hates to hear in our modern sensibilities. Submit to your husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands. But let's be equal in our application of Scripture. What are husbands called to do? Love your wives. And what's the example? As Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself for it. Husbands, you're to be giving yourselves away for your wives. Seeking her needs above your own. Because notice what Christ does. He is, gives himself so that the church might be sanctified and cleansed with the water of the word. That he may be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Now, these are the goals that we are set in all relationships, is to be like Christ. Christ-likeness is how we are to live our lives. But Peter, as Paul just did, points us more specifically to how there are roles determined by God for the family. So as we seek Christ-likeness, that's the first thing. Husbands can't fulfill their roles as husbands unless they seek Christ's likeness. Wives can't fulfill their roles as wives unless they seek Christ's likeness. That is the first goal. But then as we do that, God has ordained and defined particular roles for the husband and the wife in the family. Now, part of what my responsibility is to do as we work through scripture is to address the ways that our current culture is shifting or changing ideas or attacking truths of scripture. And one of the more particular truths that's attacked today is this idea of separate roles in the family. And one of the things that will often come up in that statement is, well, you are making women lesser than men. And that is absolutely not the case. And what we have to recognize is that there is equality in value, but difference in role. There is equality in value, but difference in role. And we see this particularly in a couple different things that are displayed for us in Scripture. It's important to maintain the distinction that although there is different roles fulfilled, they are both equally valued in Christ's sight. Now we again have this tendency to think that if somebody is underneath somebody else the person above them has greater value and that is not the way it is in the body of Christ. There's a few things here that I want to point to that show this to be the case. The first is the image of God. God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. And so the the, the full stamp of god's image is given to both and value is given to both there is no superiority in that sense we also see this in the fact that christ showed countercultural care and concern for women he would often break social norms to minister to women in fact we know the majority of his life was spent with his disciples who were men but yet He significantly speaks in ways that he cares for his mother. He cares for Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. We see of how particularly he crosses over not just um, gender roles, but also racial barriers in his discussion with the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. I mean, Jesus showed value in the way he sought to minister to women. And in fact, if we look at the body of Christ, there is equal value, yet different roles, even in the church. And this has nothing to do with gender. This is just has to do with giftedness. Some people are gifted with leading abilities. Some people are gifted with, with other helps abilities. Some people are gifted in public proclamation. Other people are gifted in encouraging believers. Does that make the the one person's role who maybe has a more public role more important or more valuable than somebody who doesn't? And the answer is no. And this transcends gender in the way that the spirit gives his gifts to people. So there are equal value yet different roles even in the church. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 through 29 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all what? One in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. And then finally, we just see what Peter himself says in this passage, that men and women are equal heirs of grace. We see this in verse 7. He tells men to honor, to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So it is very important that we say that equality of value, or equality in value does not mean that there is equality in role. There is equality of value, yet difference in role. And frankly, this is just something that is obvious in society. There's hierarchical structures, that, and society works that way, designed by God. But it doesn't make someone lesser than. This means, then, that there is no place for male chauvinism in the body of Christ. Men are not somehow a superior race than women. And we must keep this at the forefront because... The world is attacking that reality and saying, well, this is what you're saying about women. No, we affirm the equal value of women in the family. We just recognize that God has created things so that they fulfill different roles, which is then what we also must be careful to say, that we aren't saying equality of value, therefore brings equality in role. God has different roles for men and women in marriage. And so Peter is now going to turn to discuss these different yet complementary roles that we see in the marriage covenant. So I I sort of set off this way to say, let's avoid the extremes. There's a pit on either side of this issue. One is that we, we go straight into the idea of eradicating any idea that God has provided roles for men and women in marriage, and the world would love us to fall into that pit, but frankly, the devil works also to our right and calls us and, and would call us to say, well, men are somehow better or more more, more more valued in God's eye, which is also equally a wrong way of looking at things. So now we're going to look at these two roles. We're going to look at the role of wives and the role of husbands. Now, you may be. Tempted to say, well, there's a lot of a lot of ink spilled on women, and not very much on men. And so, women, you might be thinking, boy, Peter is really picking on us women, all right. And and here's the thing we have to keep in mind: Peter just because he uses a lot more um, a, a lot more words to explain what he's saying, it doesn't mean that it's it's he's picking on women. He's taking what's necessary to describe the role encouraging women in fact you're going to I think when we come through this you're going to find my goal here is to to have wives wanting to be submitting to their husbands as God has designed it here and so he spends a lot of time describing that I think also maybe recognizing that even the world he lived in there was a push back against the roles that God had placed in the family so he's not picking on women here, and when we get to talking to about men, which will probably be next week, um, he has equally important things to say to them. And so the first thing we see about the role of wives is voluntary submission. Wives, or, or as he says here, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I think it's important to note who this command is given to. Who is Peter talking to? He says, wives. He does not say, husbands, make sure your wives remain submissive to you. This first command is given to wives. The responsibility of wives to submit to their husband is a responsibility that falls on the wife. It's not something that the husband is to take upon himself. Peter, at no point in this passage, calls husbands to be the ones to come alongside and cause engage with or call their wives to submit all right it just doesn't work well you know i tell my wife look i want ham for dinner every night this week and you must submit and she serves me by not making ham for dinner every night or otherwise i would probably be dead already all right Th- this this idea is not calling uh, for the husband to be accountable whether or not his wife submits to him. There is no hint of male domination in these verses. So we have to keep that clearly in mind. But yet, the command is for wives to submit to their husbands. This is a voluntary submission to the leadership of your husband. Now, this doesn't mean that a wife and a husband can't discuss things that a wife can't have input. In fact, a good husband would seek input from his wife. She thinks differently than you. She has different perspectives on things. So it's, it's not saying that, well, the husband is the husband, and he's just got to, you know, do whatever, and the wife has no say. That's not at all the case. Read Proverbs 31. Look at the strength of the virtuous woman there in Proverbs 31. But ultimately, the husband is the leader, and the wife is the follower. The husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church, and we just saw that in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, maybe you're hearing this, and you're like, okay, yeah, but you don't know my husband. It's really hard to submit to him. He doesn't treat me fairly. He selfishly directs Our family and our lives in a particular way. Or maybe you would say, and my husband isn't even a believer. So, what are we to do in those instances? Well, what did Peter tell us to do to government officials or to um, workplace situations where we're not treated fairly? What's the call? What, What did we have you guys repeat over and over again? You're too. Submit. And so the call for wives to submit to husbands is not said just to submit to good husbands. Wives, you have the privilege of suffering with Christ as you submit to husbands who do not act justly. And here's the thing. Even the best and most godly of Christian husbands in this world fail. We're all fallen sinners. And so There's a reality that no husband is perfect. So wives must seek to act Christ-like in their submission. Not reviling as we saw Christ did, but rather entrusting themselves to a God who judges justly. And men, pay attention to that. Because you will stand before God and give an account for how you led your wives and your families. And God judges justly. Now, secondly, one of the things that Peter points out, and we see this at the end of verse 3, says, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. We're going to spend more time looking at this next week. But the transformed conduct of a submissive wife can actually be a means for gospel transformation in her husband. God can use your submission to change your husband's heart. I think thirdly, we need to recognize that the same exceptions to submission that we talked about a few weeks ago also apply to wives. Women are right to refuse to do anything that violates God's commands or their right to refuse to submit when their husbands tell them to not do that which God commands them to do. And there's a great example of this in the scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 15 of Abigail and Nabal. All right? You think you have a bad husband? Read about Nabal. Right? He was an idiot. And his, I mean, in fact, that's, that's, his name actually means idiot. <laughs> and yet you see her working graciously behind the scenes to bring about peace with him when, when David and his men were coming to slaughter their entire family. So again, as Dr. Clowney reminds us, the Christian wife seeks opportunities to imitate Christ in willing subjection to service to her husband. And again, if Christ is our example, wives should be willing to submissively serve their husbands. So voluntary submission is the first rule that Peter points to. Secondly, though, he doesn't doesn't stop there. And, And what we're going to see is that submission and the role that a wife has goes beyond just submission. That's the thing that we tend to focus on so much because it's all that the world wants to focus on. But Peter dives deeper and he talks about how there is to be transformed conduct in the lives of wives. He goes on to describe what submissive conduct looks like look with me in chapter 3 verse 3 or verse 2 he says when they see your respectful and pure conduct the first thing we see is that this transformed conduct flows from living in awe of god the word that's used here for respectful is actually the greek word that from where we get the idea the fear of the lord it can refer to dread awe, or reverence. Now, we might be tempted to think that Peter here is telling wives to stand in awe at their husbands. All right? That is not what Peter is saying here. In fact, we're going to see very clearly what he's speaking of because even throughout the entire, the entire Scripture, the fear, that word fear, is used almost exclusively of fearing the Lord. When Peter is saying that a wife one way a wife shares her devotion to Christ is in her relationship to husband, to her husband. Her submission to her husband is not primarily focused on pleasing him, but pleasing the Lord. And that's an important distinction to keep in mind. You don't please, you don't submit to your husband so that your husband can get what he wants. You submit to your husband because you're seeking to fear the Lord in your lives. And this is seen in pure conduct that he speaks of, again, in verse 2. They see respectful and pure conduct that her lifestyle would be one of purity. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul encourages older women to teach younger women so that they would live self-controlled, pure lives in submission to their husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. This ties the motivation for godly submission not to be a man-pleaser, but a God-pleaser. That is the role of, when you submit to your husband's wives, you are doing it, not because your husband is the great and best thing on the face of the earth, but because your God is, and you're seeking to serve and honor him. Tom Schreiner writes in his uh, documentary, his commentary, on 1 Peter, wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation, neither do they submit um, to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands, and not even because she thinks her husband is wife. She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. That is the driving call of submission. So this transformed conduct that the, a that the wife is to have is, begins with living in awe of God. And then it, began, then it is seen in pursuing inward beauty. Look at verse 3. Now Peter begins stepping on toes, if, as the, the saying goes. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Peter turns to a practical way in which living in awe of God shows itself. And it is seen in the way that a wife, and I would say that this applies to every believer, everyone presents themselves before the world. The way in which we represent ourselves to those around us is an indication of what our walk with Christ is. Paul picks up on these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, and he uses a word that Peter is hinting at, but doesn't actually use. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with, and here's the word that is often another triggering word, with what? Modesty. And self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So if I didn't have you mad enough talking about submission, now we're going to talk about modesty. All right. Now to understand what Peter and Paul are getting at here, we must be careful to point out what they are not getting at. All right. My wife wears jewelry. She has earrings in her ears. All right. That he's not forbidding the wearing or the putting on of jewelry. And and one reason, if we were to take it to that extreme, then there'd be a real issue because. Because look at what he says. Don't let your adorning be the, or, um I'm sorry, do not let your adorning be external. So the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or literally the putting on of clothes. So if we're saying you're not to wear jewelry and you're not to braid your hair, well then we can't be saying you're also not to wear clothes, all right? That would be the opposite of modesty, all right? He is not, he is not, um, he, he, I'll just, yeah, I'll let you go with that, all right? It's not what he's saying here. Rather, what Peter and Paul are getting at is that our adorning, the efforts we put into those things ought not to be the focus of our exertions. Paul uses the term modesty, and although Peter doesn't use that specific term, he's talking about the same subject. Now again, apart from wives submit, I don't think any other subject in Scripture can engender anger like the idea, well, women, you need to be modest. We also have to be careful here that, and recognize what Peter is getting at. Right? He does not give us inches in which we need to start measuring things. He doesn't want us to bind individual consciences on other people. Rather, he is going to the heart. And here's the question I think that Peter wants women, particularly as he's talking to wives, to think of as they get dressed in the morning. Does my external appearance reflect my fear of the Lord and desire to live a pure life? I think that's the question that women, but men as well, need to ask themselves. So some questions to think of. When you get yourself up in the morning, when you adorn yourself, is your primary goal to draw attention to yourself or to Jesus? That should be the question you ask. Now, in particular, he talks about three things. He talks about, first of all, um, the braiding of hair. I think we could we could lump in with this the idea of the putting on of makeup. When I do those things, am I seeking to draw attention to me by highlighting my beauty? Is that my goal? And if it is, then I'm likely not living modestly. Or the wearing of jewelry. Am I putting on jewelry, am I wearing things strategically to draw attention to my status so that I wear costly apparel so that everyone can see how much money I have? Or in the way that I wear my clothing, do I draw attention to myself by highlighting my desirability, showing off parts of myself so that it would get the attention of others? And so when you take that last look in the mirror Monday morning, what is it that you notice? Do you notice yourself or do you seek to have pure conduct lived out in the fear of the Lord? Our world is very self-centered and self promotive And it's seen in the clothing that both women and men choose to wear. But a believer is to be Christ-promoting in how many things in your life? All things. So does that include the clothing you put on? Yes. It's not just seen in our words or our conduct, but even in the things we choose to adorn ourselves. So if our adorning is not to be external, then what should it be? And Peter answers this directly. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We should seek inward beauty, not outward beauty. We should seek to have our hearts transformed by God's grace, not outwardly showing ourselves, in whatever manner we may do that, to the world. Now here's the thing about adorning our inward hearts. Who sees your inward heart? Do other people see your inward heart? No. Who sees it? God. And so you may not get the accolades from men. You may not get the looks that you're hoping to get. You may not get the attention outwardly. But God is the one who finds this gentle and quiet spirit, something that is an imperishable beauty. Notice what God says in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on, predicting, particularly talking about David, on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Talking about, I'm sorry, talking about uh, Saul. He says, but where does God look? The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward, but God looks where? On the heart. And so this is what Peter is calling particularly wives, but all of us to do is to be modest in the way we conduct ourselves. Peter seeks to probe deeper than just what we put on here when he talks about modesty, but also that our entire conduct is that which draws attention to Christ and not ourselves. And we see that as he speaks about a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We want our outward adorning and our actions to reflect an inward love for, dependence upon, and praise to God above all things. True modesty issues from our hearts that desire God's fame, not our own. And it affects not just what we put on our bodies, but how we act in the entirety of our lives. We ought not to seek the approval of man with our dress or our actions. And it is in this way that we can model, we can follow after the example of our Lord. What does the Bible say about Jesus' outward physical um, uh, appearance? Notice what Isaiah says. He grows up before Yahweh like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. We're called to live like our Savior, to have a beauty of the inward man in the hidden place of our hearts. And so we've seen this voluntary submission, this transformed conduct, which is seen in living in awe of God and pursuing inward beauty. And then the final thing that is given specifically as a role to a wife, is to find and to have confidence in the Lord. Notice what we see here in verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you what? Do good, that's not it, and... Do not fear anything that is frightening. It's interesting that he ends with these words as he gives his challenge to wives. The final role that Peter highlights here is one that brings hope to wives. We've already hinted at it and we looked at living in awe of God. You don't submit to your husband because he's the best thing since sliced bread. I guarantee you he probably is not. You submit to your husband because you trust God. Sarah is the one particularly that Peter points to. He talks about, first of all, just in general, the women of old. This is how the holy women, or, or, I'm sorry, not the, not, not the old women, the holy women, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Now, notice what it is that he describes as those holy women. What did they do? They hoped in their husbands is that what he says? Who hoped in who? God, and then he speaks of and then he speaks of Sarah. It's interesting that he chooses Sarah as the uh, the example here. Sarah, of course, is whose wife, Abraham. All right, Abraham, patriarch of Israel, strong, you know, defender of the faith, someone that had faith in Christ, and is pointed to by Paul. Great example. But you know what? He was a little bit of an idiot at times with his wife. There's actually two instances in Abraham's life where he says, you know what? I know you're my wife, but I think it'd be better if you act like I'm, you're my sister. Because they're going to kill me and take you as their, as, their, as their wife. And you know what? In his foolishness, you know what happens? They take her as, his, as, as another person's wife. Now, Imagine being Sarah in that circumstance. Your husband is telling you to act like his sister. And then particularly, you come to Abimelech, who's a king there, and he sees and says, oh, well, you guys aren't married, right? And Abraham's like, no, we're not married. He's like, okay, I'm going to take your sister as my wife. And now she's being led away from her husband. All right? Abraham, you're not acting very smartly here. You're not acting godly. You're acting like an idiot. What does Sarah do? And it's remarkable. Right? I, I don't think I could submit like Sarah submitted here. She, I said, well, my husband told me to act like her, his brothers or his sister, so okay. Shocking. Shocking. But then we find that Abimelech takes her and, and, and before anything happens, he has a dream. And in that dream, God says, I'm going to kill you. He's like, what? <laughs> literally, that's literally what God says. I'm going to kill you. And Abimelech like, well, what have I done? I, I've acted innocently. And he tells us this, Sarah is not Abraham's sister. Sarah is Abraham's wife. And Abimelech is like, well, I, I did this innocently. He's like, and God says, yes, I know you did it innocently. So the, the threat that I'm going to kill you is if you don't give her back, I'm going to kill you. But notice what's said in Genesis 26. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of of your heart. And then notice, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You see the faith of Sarah honored by how God protected her? See, that's what he is speaking of when he says, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. I bet you Sarah was terrified when she was taken away from her husband. But yet, her faith in God gave her strength that even if her husband acted like an idiot, God would protect her. And did he? He did. You know, it can be very difficult for a woman to submit to a husband who can be an idiot at times, or maybe is an idiot all the time. And what can happen is anxiety and fear and worry can begin to well up in the heart. Boy, look at what is happening here. Or, oh, he's squandering what we have. Or, or I, I, just, I just don't know that I can trust him. And you know what? God is not calling you to trust your husbands. God is calling you to trust Him. Submission is not about trusting your husbands. Submission is saying, I trust God. That even when your husband makes a foolish or selfish decision, you are still in the hands of the God who works how many things together for good? All things. So, the Pilgrim's family, wives, submit to your husband. Voluntary submission, a transformed life, and trusting in God in all things. Next week, men, husbands, it's your turn. And just, just to give you a quick preview of this. In the same way, or likewise, he says in verse 7, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. And, and I, I really wanted to do both of the things in one week, but we just don't have the time. Somebody said, when, when they're out there in the back having breakfast, I usually come in and say, all right, two-minute warning before the service. And they said, well, we're going to give you a two-minute warning. I didn't see the two-minute warning. Oh, I just didn't see it. Okay. So I, I knew that I, do, I wouldn't have enough time to talk about husband. But I just want to make this point, all right, particularly as... Wives are to not fear anything that is frightening. Husbands, your responsibility is to live with your wives in an understanding way. You know what I think that first points out? Ease their fears. Husbands are called to not be idiots before their wives. And we'll talk more about that next week. I used to do that, like, when I worked at the Salvation Army Summer Day Camp. I would, like, leave, leave a Bible story as a cliffhanger and be like, you have to come back tomorrow to find out what's going to happen. So husbands, you've got to come back next life, And wives, you need to come back next week to find out what Peter says to your husbands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its countercultural call to us. Lord, we are in the world but not of the world. And Lord, we know that these things are difficult, particularly in a world that is so um, stringently against the things of your word. Father, give us strength by your spirit to live out the roles that you have designed for us. Father, I pray that you would pour out grace and mercy and strength to husbands and wives here today. That they would fulfill the roles that you have designed for them trusting and depending upon you alone. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood.